This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii U.S. Representative Jill Takuda is uh, into her first official day in office. She was sworn in Saturday morning after the House Republicans finally voted in California lawmaker Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. We talked to Takuda earlier today as she prepared to head into a late session on the House floor. She took the oath of office on her mother's Bible after an intense week of political uncertainty. It was really surreal, I I will tell you, because, right, you have all this anticipation on Tuesday morning, and you have your family there, friends, literally people have flown 6,000 miles to be there there with you. You know, we had a couple come and bless our office. We had our lays, our our fresh lays and and everything. And then four days and 15 votes later, (laughs) we, we get sworn in. But I will tell you, it was still magical nonetheless, as I think because of all that it took to get there. It was a real surreal moment. Uh, very early in the morning on a Saturday, um, I knew my family was watching back at home then at that point in Hawaii. Um, and it was just a real special time. And I think, you know, at least for myself and I think for many others, we, we kind of took it in for at least a few minutes between all that craziness that was, you know, bookending it um, to realize that this was real. We were now officially members of Congress. And so uh, definitely a a moment in time I will never forget. Have you had a chance to talk to your boys just about how this first week went? You know, I have. I've, I've talked to them, not so much to decompress what the week was like. They were watching and, and they were commenting, of course, but more so important to me to talk with them about going back to school today. <laughs> Actually, you know, they've been up here with me, getting me settled for the last two and a half weeks. And the last few conversations I've had with them have been about school, are you okay, what I need to do actually even emailing teachers to make sure their transition would be okay. And so, you know, as much as I'd love to tell them what's going on in mom's life, my real focus actually has been making sure that as my my kids go back to school, my husband goes back to work, that I do as much as I can support them, you know, from even far away. And I just can't wait to be home on Friday. It is going to be a bit of a transition being there in D.C. and then flying back home to the islands. But Mm -hmm. gosh, how was your first official day uh, today? (laughs) We go in for our first round of votes at 5 p.m. And I am told that we are going to be anticipating some heated debates on the rules as well as the first bill that they're going to be putting forward, the IRS bill, which would defund a lot of the positions and supports that was put in through the Inflation Reduction Act last year and and remove that. And so we're going to be going in um, for votes starting at 5 p.m. And I'm told the last vote might be around 9 p.m., which just means it's going to be a very, very late night for us tonight. So we haven't even gotten on the floor yet, but we anticipate it's going to be quite a busy night, potentially early morning again. And what was it like being in the Capitol on January 6th, on the anniversary, the second anniversary, you know, knowing just what had Mm -hmm. happened that day? I'll tell you, I remember the first time I actually stepped foot on the floor, you know, during orientation after being elected and sitting in there. And the first thought I had in my mind was what what it must have been like to have people pounding on the glass, breaking through the glass. It's not that big of, of a chamber, honestly, right? And so you you can just only imagine what was going on there. First of all, for me, just sadness, but just the, the fear that that must have been felt on that day, being in that chambers. And I think to be here on January 6th, being able to pay tribute and honor those who stood up and defended our freedom. And quite frankly, acknowledged the lawmakers who stood their ground as well to make sure that those elections were certified. Um, it really was a humbling honor for me to be a part of that as well, because I think, you know, looking back at January 6th, the biggest takeaway has to be that democracy still stands today, that we have to be even stronger. We have to learn from it. We have to hold those accountable who caused that day to even happen. And so I feel really blessed and, and, and privileged that I was able to be a part of those ceremonies, to stand, pay tribute, to hold moments of silence for those who had suffered injuries or loss of life as well. I mean, it, people don't realize that. People died. And so many, countless families are impacted 
by this, the brave men and women who still continue to come to work every day. So it definitely was a, a moving moment to me, but I think also a call to all of us that we must continue to be vigilant going forward as well. I just remember watching that day, and we were all concerned for our um, you know, members of our Hawaii delegation because we didn't mm-hmm. know where they were. So we were all breathing a sigh of relief to know that everybody was safe. So we're going to worry about you, too, over there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I definitely appreciate it. I can tell you, I definitely feel all of, of the aloha coming from home all the way here in D.C. And, you know, just so very appreciated, so grateful. Talk about what you hope to accomplish Um, this session, Mm -hmm. knowing that the house is split? Yeah, definitely. I think, unfortunately, you know, what America played witness to was the deep divisions, even the divisions within the majority side that existed. You know, you saw that over the last uh, week as well. I think what it, what is clear, though, is the unity that you did see within the minority, you know, within the Democratic caucus, um, is a testament to the fact that there are 212 of us that are ready to roll up our sleeves and just get to work. I think making sure that we bring home supports for our communities, that we really bring it home for Hawaii, and they feel that they have a voice and not just a voice, but action, quite frankly, is also going to mean that, you know, I've got to cross the aisle and work with like-minded people that really want to get things done. Um, and so for myself, as I look at potential committee assignments, I look at priorities that I want to do, um, it is going to have to be, you know, at the end of the day, a bipartisan effort. I do believe that one of my strengths is the fact that I am really focused on families. You know, you and I have had this conversation. I come into this as a mom and see everything through the lens of a mother that worries about all of our children, um, whether it's my sons and my nieces or anyone, being able to make it, you know, in that place that they call home, whether it's Hawaii or any other state in this country. And that means we're going to have to take action fast. There's so much urgency, I feel. Um, there was so much urgency last week, just waiting to be able to be official so we can get things done. But it really is about how do we work hard now so that people really can make it. You know, affordability is an issue not just in Hawaii, but across the country. But I'm worried about our people. And I'm going to reach out to whomever will be a willing partner and ally to make sure that we can bring those supports and help home to Hawaii. I'm sure just the uncertainty of that first week was hard on your staff because you really couldn't open your doors, right? Uh, Because you weren't officially sworn in. Talk about that. Well, the good part was at least we had an office in D.C. <laughs> so we, we, we did open our doors physically. And, and as I mentioned, we did it the right way and the Hawaii way. We had a kahu here. Uh, Kaimana Chi came and blessed our office and made sure that it was filled with so much aloha. We had uh, beautiful arrangements that we brought in from Hilo. Uh, and just, you know, again, wanted to make sure that we started off right, even if, when, even if we weren't officially sworn in. And I can tell you that... You know, our, our staff was ready to go, start taking on constituent concerns. But sadly, we were actually not able to, legally not even able to look for an office in Hawaii or get a cell phone, let alone being able to answer a lot of the constituent cases that were coming in through email. So fortunately, that all changed on Saturday morning. Now it really is about uh, really working hard to make sure that we, we've not missed a beat. But it was very frustrating, I can tell you, for our team. But there was so much other work we could do in the meantime in terms of even setting up, you know, ways that I will be engaged and reaching out to the community in the weeks and the months to come. So it was also a good time, I think, for us to be able to really focus in on what our priorities would be. And for me, most importantly, how I can best engage with the community um, when I'm home and quite frankly, even here in D.C., you know, because for me, it's the most important thing is putting our district, our people at the center of everything that we do. So that, that's largely what we did when we were, you know, legally unable to, to really respond to a lot of the work that, that is coming now. So your staff here in Honolulu, I guess they're just in the ground running. They're on the ground running. And we're, we're quickly trying to look for, you know, a, a space for our office, believe it or not. But even uh, without a physical space, uh, they are already attending meetings, planning meetings, you know, taking in concerns, doing all this stuff. So we are definitely off and running, and I'm just really looking forward to what we'll be able to start to roll out and then uh, share in the, in the weeks ahead as well. And we're adding to our team too, so please look out for that. I would expect by the end of the week we'll be able to talk about even more of the team members, strong Hawaii ties, amazing individuals who care about this state. We'll be talking about how our team is growing as well. Okay, and then how are you managing the cold? <laughs> It is, you know, believe it or not, a 
So it's been extreme. At one point, um, our family was up here around Christmas and it was negative three with the wind chill. So that was definitely a new experience for our kids <laughs> to have that kind of cold here. Uh, but at some points in the last week or so, it's been almost in the 60s or the 60s, which is crazy for January. I will tell you that uh, in D.C. But I stepped out of my apartment this morning and it was definitely back to the cold again. So, you know, it's uh, it's all about learning and remembering how to layer up, which is not something we do, uh, quite honestly, <laughs> back at home. So it's it's just layers on layers and not being embarrassed if you've got on, you know, the... The, the beanie, the scarf, the gloves, the everything, just to stay warm. So I have no shame. Okay. I will bundle up uh, as much as I have to to feel a little bit warm as I walk over to the Capitol. And that was Democratic Representative Jill Takuda talking to us about her first week in Washington and her first day of work on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Whaling ships, primarily American vessels, began arriving in Hawaii in the early 19th century. At that time, whale oil was used for heating as lamp fuel and in industrial machinery. Whalebone and baleen was used in women's corsets, hoop skirts, and various other everyday items. Whaling ships tracked and hunted whales around the world in uh, the Sea of Japan, the South Pacific, and eventually the Arctic. And they frequently stopped in Hawaii to restock provisions, replenish their crews, and transfer their whale oil cargo. Lahaina uh, and Honolulu ports became integral stops for the whaling economy for over 20 years, with the Pacific whaling fleet quadrupling in size in those 20 years. In 1824 alone, over 100 whaling ships stopped in Hawaiian ports. The whaling industry brought a lot of change and influence to Hawaii and often generated conflict as the ruling chiefs worked to maintain order and establish laws to regulate drinking, gambling, prostitution, and even horse riding on Sundays. Although the whaling industry was flourishing, the whaling captains, even in the Pacific fleet, were not Hawaiian, except one. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the name of the only Native Hawaiian whaling captain? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HP or tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Kamehameha Kalakaua Ka'iwalani. The tombs of Hawaii's royal families can be found in Nu'uanu. It's a four-acre site across from the historic Oahu Cemetery that will be the final resting place this month for Abigail Kinoiki Kekalike Kavananakoa, who passed away on December 11th. We got in touch with former Midweek columnist Don Chapman, who wrote a book about the history of Mauna Ala. It's called Mauna Ala, Hawaii's Royal Mausoleum last remnant of a lost kingdom. 
I had been looking for this story without really knowing I was looking for it. Both of my children are native Hawaiian, part native Hawaiian, Keikioka Aina, and I wanted them to grow up uh, well educated about native ways, even though I'm not. So we would go visiting on the big island to the birthplace of Kamehameha is uh, the big thingy out near Kauai. But the one mystery was where was Kamehameha buried? And I thought I would never ever had come close to knowing the answer. And then thanks to the singer Polani Vaughn, my old friend from the Central YMCA day, he, he introduced me to Bill Myoho, who was the curator caretaker at Mount Allah, and thought it would be a good story. So I called Bill, told him that I was interested in doing a midweek cover story, and he was uncomfortable. He's a very private man, but he invited me up to talk, you know, note-taking, no recording of the conversation, just talk story. And at the end of it, he said he was going to sleep on it. I got a call the next day and said that he was willing to tell his family story, which goes back to the night that, that Mehameha was buried. Bill's family service to the royals of uh, Hawaii goes back to the night that two of Bill's ancestors were chosen by Kamehameha to dispose of his bones. His uh, native name, Kai Hei Kai, hints at the location of the burial, secret burial place of Kamehameha which would be in the cave. And I, I personally suspect that Madame Pelle has since covered up the entrance with fresh lava just to keep it safe. And he lived up there uh, at the, I think, caretaker's cottage. And I believe his son is now the official caretaker there. Bill Jr., yes. Bill, who is, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, actually grew up there. His grandmother, his grandfather, his grandmother, his mother, and then he were chosen as caretakers to carry on the family tradition that, as I said, was back to that night when his two ancestors hid away the bones of Kamehameha in a sea cave on the Kona coast. So what else did Kahu uh, Mahaiola share with you about how special that place is? Oh, oh my goodness. It, it's all about the mana of the evening of the bone, where most Westerners consider the human bones, you know, the skeleton is a spooky thing at the end. You can get it in a Halloween costume. But where the um, native Hawaiians, the, the Nivi, hold all of the mana, the spiritual energy. As Bill said, all of the mana of all of the royals who cared so much for the people of Hawaii is all concentrated in that one little acreage up there. When was the last time you were up there? Bill was still alive, so it's been a while. But I drive by and I sort of pause and pay, pay my respect. What was it that struck you about there as you spent time writing about it? Well, as a journalist, the one thing that I've always believed in is tell a story nobody else has ever told. And this is that story in knocking on my door. And I told Bill that even though I'm not native, I respect the culture a great deal, and I wanted to tell this story. And the families that are buried up there, share with our listeners, uh, besides the Kamehameha line. Well, there there is the Kamehameha line, including Charles Bishop and his wife, the Princess Tawahi. There is the Kalakaua script with Queen Emma and that line. There's also and, the uh, Lunalilo line as yeah, well. Yeah, that's the Lunalilo one as well. But not everybody is buried up there. No, there is also on the grounds of uh, Kauaihau Church, there is another one. Well, as we prepare for Abigail Kamananakoa to be laid to rest up there, you know, what are your thoughts and hopes as people think about uh, Mauna Ala? That it remains a special place, that it remains a place of great spiritual power. When I walk on the ground, you can feel the mana of the old kings and queens and princes and princesses and their families and the caring that they had for the people of Hawaii and the land of Hawaii. I hope that Princess Abigail adds more mana, whether she deserves to be there or not. That's not for me to decide. But she obviously cared very much for the Native Hawaiian people, did a lot of work for them, spent a lot of money for them. And I think that, that in that sense, it's a good addition. I think many people drive by there and may not know how special that area is. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. When, when the book was published several years ago, I heard from people who said, I had no idea there was even such a thing as a royal mausoleum, much less one right in the middle of a busy part of Honolulu. Well, I know that uh, Kamehameha Schools has students that go down there for Founders Day. Uh, and just recently, the uh, students from uh, the Priory went down there for uh, Queen Emma's uh, birthday, I believe. Uh, so, you know, the school children learn about that history, but not everybody knows that. 
which is too bad because it's a powerful story that is ongoing. And even though it's a place where it's really a cemetery, it's a place of powerful life. The last time I was there for an event, uh, it was, gosh, I think we were marking the birthday of Princess Kaiulani. And some of her uh, relatives, you know, were there. And there was a group, I think, from Scotland that came and, and danced uh, at the entrance of the tomb uh, in her honor. So it was really, really pretty special to see that happen, you know, that uh, uh, there are folks that go there to pay respects on those important days. It's my understanding that every time that one of the late royals has a birthday, that there is a celebration at the chapel of Nanaala. And what's your understanding as to what happens uh, as far as the, the lineage, you know, of the family that's entrusted to take care of those burials? Bill's son, Bill Jr., also Kai is in charge, but there was a protocol when I believe Bill's grandmother was appointed caretaker. Was that Auntie Lydia? Yes, I believe so. Lydia, my oho. But there was a protocol that they followed, and I'm certain that that will be repeated. Bill uh, had told me during the interview that the literal translation into English of Mount Allah is fragrant mountain, but the counter, the hidden meaning, the secret meaning, is sacred path that preserves. So that's what Mount Allah is all about, is preserving the native way of life. As the title of the book says, it's the last remnant of a lost kingdom. Sacred path? Fragrant mountain is the literal, and path to preservation is the that was author uh, Don Chapman, who wrote the book Mauna Allah, Hawaii's Royal Mausoleum, Last Remnant of a Lost Kingdom. You can still get the book through Mutual Publishing. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. In the exhibition Moe Moea, artist Noah Harders transforms found materials into fantastical works. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Today on The Daily, the inside story of how Kevin McCarthy's bid for House Speaker turned into a rolling disaster over five long days and 15 painful rounds of voting and what McCarthy was forced to give up to finally win. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Kumukahua Theater. Inspired by a true story, Gone Fishing by Lee Tonouchi is a metaphysical exploration of love, communication, and forgiveness. Opens January 19th, kumukahua.org. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at the extra office space around town that the state is leasing. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair is on the line. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Monday to you, too. (laughs) And Happy New Year. Uh, You know, our our story today is something that uh, Kevin Dayton wrote, and it's about uh, uh, leased office space. But I didn't realize that the lawmakers actually passed legislation that says reduce our footprint. Mm, exactly. And Kevin is not here today because he's in Arizona on assignment, so happy to cover for him. But this law was passed by the legislature uh, in 2021, of course, uh, still in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic at that time. We still haven't actually left it yet. And this law requires DAGs, right, the Department of Accounting and General Services, the state comptroller, uh, to find out what it can do to support people, state workers, uh, to help them work for home, as so many of us did, um, and as so many of us still continue to do, that changed the way we we worked. A lot more people working from home because of COVID. So this new law says, let's try, not try, it is a mandate. Let's mandate a 10% reduction in state office space uh, by sometime in 2026. The reason is, 
obvious. Uh, to save money, rents are not cheap. Uh, to also allow people to telework. Uh, in fact, though, Kevin discovered, and this is based on a DAG's report, we've actually increased the at least a little bit the amount of office space the state is using, even though we have been coming out of COVID. And the reason for that is... Well, according to the report, it, it turns out it depends on the departments. It depends on the agencies. Not every agency has the same uh, needs, the same office space needs. He points to a couple of examples. Uh, for example, the legislator, legislature created a new department, a new law enforcement department. It's going to help out the Department of Public Safety, which runs the prisons and jails and the sheriff's office, to help them out. Well, they're going to need 20,000 more square feet. Uh, in, in order to do those operations. It's not just agencies that were created, it's existing ones. Department of Health, during COVID, remember they had to to set up contact tracing to try and find out who's sick and help people, and that required more space. Uh, there's that new Wahiwa Civic Center that's going to be developed. Well, what are you going to do in the meantime with the existing operation? By the way, Kevin did find there were some agencies that have reduced their office space, um, ERS, right, the Employees Retirement System, but even the Attorney General's office had to add office space over the last few years. Kevin lists some other examples as well. It's just interesting, you know, because, you know, lawmakers looking to, to uh, uh, you know, reduce rents on one hand, save money, save taxpayers money. And yet, mm, yeah. like you said, expanded government. Uh, you know, and obviously it's to try and make uh, public safety more efficient, you know, and, and help with our yeah. law enforcement officers. But I, it, I think another thing you found out that what I thought was really interesting is, you know, the government in Hawaii is all at least the state government, is concentrated pretty closely together in the capital district, right? Basically downtown Honolulu. And so a lot of these programs, a lot of these agencies, they want to stay within that district. Why? Well, it's easy enough to walk from department to department. That's where a lot of the state buildings are located. Of course, it's not cheap. So that's one factor. Uh, another factor is that a lot of these folks still want to work from home a little bit. So they mm. they got to come up with some sort of balance here. And I know that uh, the unions have a say in this. I think when we talked to uh, <laughs> the head of the Hawaii uh, uh, yeah. you know, Government Employees Association, the largest government union, that, that you know, they were saying that, hey, uh, we have a policy in the, on the books about uh, teleworking. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately what this involves is collective bargaining, and it's not just HGEA, which of course is the largest public sector union, but uh, UPW, United Public Workers, is involved as well. Uh, and you have to negotiate these changes uh, because that's just the way collective bargaining works. Our understanding from Kevin's reporting is that HGEA may be moving towards ratifying some sort of agreement regarding telework. Uh, the Department of uh, Human Resources, DHERD, is involved in these discussions as well. Uh, it's it's complicated, but there there is a general understanding, a wide agreement that things have changed, that telework uh, can save money, can keep employees, if you will, happy and healthy. Yeah, but uh, yeah, mandating the uh, reduced foot, footprint, nothing's ever easy. <laughs> yeah, one other thing, there, Kevin couldn't get a response from DAGs themselves, but they are reported to actually be exploring all the options that they have, and we expect to have some updates uh, because times have changed. Yes, and we are just about to uh, open a new session. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be more talk about it, uh, you know. As yeah, these speaking of DAGs, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe we can tear down that big construction that's around the Capitol pools. Wouldn't that be nice? And it would really be open and transparent. But I think they're still working on those pools, which, as we know, those are perennial problems. Yes, I just checked with them last week. They told me that the work on those uh, the leaks in the pond not going to happen till like, May. So, yeah, what don't hold surprise. your breath. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org.
the microbiome. It's the good bacteria that are on our skin and in our intestines that help keep our body working smoothly. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how to support your body's bacteria and avoid damaging your microbiome. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. got aquaculture on our mind as it is a promising industry for our economy. We first talked with the seaweed startup company Symbrosia a few years ago, not long after it made the move to our islands from the East Coast. Its research with Limukohu, a seaweed which is popular to eat here in the islands, made the headlines. Think beano for cows. Studies have shown to dramatically reduce the methane that cow burps and snorts by simply adding seaweed to their feed. Well, we are assured that the methane does not make it out of the back end of the cows. Some say cows make as much methane as cars. And as serious deadlines loom in California to cut methane production, the race is on to begin producing the red seaweed, the limukohu that Hawaii loves commercially for cows. Symbrosia is now one of two companies at Nelha, the natural energy laboratory of Hawaii uh, on uh, Hawaii Island, to get a boost in funding this year to scale up. We caught up with Symbrosia founder Alexia Akbe, who had just hired a science officer, Miguel Olaizola, to be part of the team as the clean tech startup company scales up to produce the feed additive commercially. Since we relocated to the Nelha facility about three years ago, um, it's been a really nice trajectory of um, both receiving grant funding to assist in all of our research development and private investment from um, local investors like Kamehameha Schools and also global investors like uh, Danon, who is the, um, a dairy conglomerate for Danon Yogurt and Horizon Organic and other dairy products on the market. So the most recent infusion that you got was $7 million. So what will that allow you to do? Yeah, our main priorities now are just to continue scaling up the production of the seaweed. So uh, over the past three years, we've really ironed out a lot of the best practices for growing it. And now that we're shifting into commercial production, there's kind of this other set of challenges around streamlining, training more people to be able to grow the species and really honing in on a practice that can be replicated as a farming practice. And then share with our listeners the good that this seaweed additive will do. Yeah, so this seaweed is very novel in that when you supplement uh, the diet of ruminant livestock, so beef cattle, dairy cows, and even small ruminants like sheep and goats, with this seaweed, just adding a sprinkle to their diets, you can mm-hmm. reduce their methane emissions, which is a greenhouse gas, by over 90%. Um, that's in some of the literature, and then we've been showing an 80% reduction in commercial uh, ranches and operations. So the future looks bright. We can actually do something. Yeah, I mean, we think that this is an awesome solution for people, the planet, and even the animals. Seaweed is a really nutritious dietary supplement as well, so we're seeing all of these benefits, co-benefits, coming along as we continue to do our research on farms. And Miguel, jump in here. You've just been hired as the uh, science advisor, and you'll be returning to Hawaii. That's right. Uh, I've been gone for a few years, 
but uh, I did study in Hawaii growing algae actually back in 1985 on Oahu at the Oceanic Institute in Wamanalo. And I spent a few years there. Then I came back to the mainland. Then I went back to uh, to the big island, to Kona, to produce more algae. Then I left for a few years, and now I'm coming back, and I'm super excited. The, the project is amazing. I've been working with algae essentially since 85 in one way or another, and uh, in many cases commercially. And one of the things that we've always touted about algae is how it consumes CO2. So it does have some ability to help with the CO2 that we have in the atmosphere. The beauty of this project, though, is that not only can the algae that we're working with now pick up CO2 from the atmosphere, but it actually produces these very nice chemicals then that when the uh, ruminants consume it, it actually mostly eliminates the production of methane. And methane, of course, is a much more potent greenhouse gas, so it makes it just really exciting. And Alexia, you know, talk about the challenges of scaling up. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty countless, but it's been a really rewarding and exciting journey. Um, You know, challenges anywhere from growing a team and getting the right people on board. We're really happy to have Miguel joining us, for example, to, yeah, figuring out how to fund pretty long research and development process to educating ranchers and different producers, livestock producers around the benefits of the product, how to use it, and then how to measure the methane reductions on the farm too so that they can get carbon credits for implementing this practice. So it's a pretty widespread number of challenges. I think, you know, the most difficult part initially was growing the algae, and we've achieved that. So I'm optimistic that we're going to make this a go. In the beginning, it definitely felt like a kind of out there challenge, but every day it just seems more and more realistic. So um, we made a lot of progress, and I'm really proud of our team. Over the years, you know, we've watched Nelha develop, and there have been, you know, some great successes. You know, Cyanotech certainly is the big guy in the room. You know, they've been pretty successful out there in the supplement market. Yeah, I think that they've charted a pathway for algae businesses, and we utilize some of the same practices that they do. So we know that it's possible. It's really just about transferring that technology and that knowledge to this species of seaweed instead of a microalgae like spirulina. And Miguel, you know, I don't know what else you can share with us, you know, because you have seen companies come and go, you know, they, they, they try and make a go of it, and, and sometimes they're, they're not successful. I have, in fact, worked for companies. Some of them don't exist anymore, and that has been a fact of the algae industry for many years. In many cases, you know, promise, over-promising and under-delivering, on the one hand, running out of money on the other hand. And uh, to be quite honest, in some cases, uh, people proposing uh, dubious products. And in the end, you have to have a product that people are going to want to use and buy. I think what we're working on now is, first of all, extremely useful. We have learned a lot as to how to produce it inexpensively enough. So there is really no excuse not to use it. And the, the potential for benefits is astounding. I can't think of a better word. Talk about the local companies uh, that you're partnering with, Alexia. Yeah, so we've been pretty closely aligned with the Hawaii Cattlemen's Council. We were a partner on the federal grant that they just received from the USDA for $40 million to pilot climate smart practices on ranches. And then we've been working with uh, three cattle ranches, medium to large size. I can't name them quite yet, um, orchestrating trials on Hawaii Island and on Maui to get our first case study for the Hawaii cattle industry. So it's really exciting because there aren't that many sources of locally produced seed in Hawaii and everything is, you know, either imported as supplement or very reliant on the weather to produce healthy and flourishing pastures for the cattle, which makes it pretty difficult from a profitability standpoint sometimes. So a lot of the producers are just excited to be able to travel our operation. We did a site tour as part of the Hawaii Cattlemen's Convention at our site and invited, you know, a number of ranchers down here to check out how we're growing the seaweed. So I think there's a lot of enthusiasm around being more self-sustaining and growing livestock quicker and more healthier with our seaweed additives than they can now. And then talk about your footprint. Are you going to need more space? Yeah, so we're currently uh, leasing part of a seven-acre facility that Miguel actually was instrumental in starting initially. Uh, back in the 90s, and we just got approved for an eight-acre expansion down here at Nelha again. So we are just in the early stages of mapping out our plans there to be able to scale up to hit in the hundreds of thousands of cattle provided with our product. 
That was Symbrosia's Alexia Akbe and Miguel Olaizola talking about the expansion of the company there at the Natural Energy Lab in Kona on the island of Hawaii. The company won the 2022 Ocean Innovation Prize from the Blue Climate Initiative for their sea grazed product, a food additive for cows to reduce methane gas production. And we should note that aquaculture generated some $80 million for Hawaii in 2021. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to discuss how sound can be used to help visually impaired astronomy fans to enjoy the cosmos. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in our island skies, and we're so grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips welcoming him back right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. This week's stargazers, we can see Mars, which can be found in the south after sunset. The moon this week is waning, passing through its last quarter phase, and so conditions for stargazing will be perfect by week's end. And this week, something very exciting that Chris has, not only about using sound as a way to analyze data that we get from the cosmos, but also a way to include people with visual impairments. Yeah, this is really exciting. We always think of astronomy as a primarily visual science due to the nature of how astronomical data is collected and interpreted. But there is a new frontier in astronomy that is being explored as a way to interpret astronomical data and increase accessibility to astronomy for visually impaired astronomers. It's called astrosonification, interpreting astronomical data with sound as opposed to visuals. Wow, it makes a lot of sense because a lot of this stuff is, is beyond what we can see anyway, so why limit ourselves? Plus, it's something that's great for... Uh being adaptable for people with disabilities. Yeah, exactly. Most astronomical imagery these days is collected in infrared, x-rays, ultraviolet, and radio. These are wavelengths that the human eye cannot see anyway. It's pretty cool stuff you got here, Chris. Who's leading this one? Well, a very talented student at the University of Pennsylvania has teamed up with a project called Astronify to work on methods that will hopefully open up the cosmos to people with visual impairments. Not only will this increase representation of visually impaired people in the field, but will also open up exciting possibilities for research. And taking a broader look at this, this is something that lots of folks, not just folks with visual disabilities, but others can also be able to take advantage of. Yeah, that's what's very cool about this. It's about Receiving our science data in a way that nobody has previously done. Who knows what kinds of exciting discoveries will be made using these methods? Exciting times indeed. It's Christopher Phillips, another exciting uh, Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Time now for your Backyard Quiz answer. We focused on Hawaii's whaling industry in the early 19th century. Over a span of about 20 years, the industry would flourish, with the Honolulu and Lahaina ports becoming valuable as whaling routes often span from uh, the Sea of Japan to the South Pacific all the way to the Arctic. Our islands were necessary stops for ships to replenish both supplies and crewmen and to transfer their cargo. To date, there is only one known Native Hawaiian whaling captain in history, George Gilly, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. As a captain of the last Hawaiian registered ship, the Julia A. Long, uh, Gilly navigated Arctic storms and fields of coral and ice to hunt whales during the blubber rush of the 19th century. Uh, Gilly was born around the year 1840 to Englishmen a William Gilly and a native, a, a native Hawaiian woman who colonized Peel Island in 1830. After leaving his home island on a whaling ship bound for Hawaii, George Gilly chose to stay in his mother's homeland and would work his way up the ranks to become the only known native Hawaiian whaling captain in recorded history. And our winner today, Blair Wright of Hanomaui. You got it right. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Thank you.
support local news coverage on HPR. The world's largest volcano, Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years. So there's no civil defense warnings, no public or police warnings at all. Mauna Loa eruptions have typically all started in Mokuaveoveo caldera, and then about half of them have moved into a rift zone, and that's exactly what we saw for this eruption. We have Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth on the line now. We've uh, been going out to our community, we've been educating our community, we've, we've been working with our partners. We've actually been doing that for the last couple of months, and so we're in a pretty good sense of preparedness, but you can never be too prepared. I wasn't frantic or anything like that because we were already kind of expecting it. I already had some things semi-packed because over time we've been told that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We'd like to steer people towards the uh, Hawaii Civil Defense website. There's a hazard map. We get that information up very quickly. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Lunar New Year, or Chinese New Year, is just around the corner. That means a return to festivities tied to usher in the Year of the Rabbit. The pandemic put a pause to some of those festivities. Here to tell us more is Jaina Omaya, our arts and culture reporter. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. And yes, as you mentioned, we're talking about Hawaii's ethnic festivals, which is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So as you mentioned, um, Lunar New Year is around the corner. And with that, um, the Night in Chinatown Festival is returning in person. It is one of many ethnic and cultural festivals that will return this year. You know, we did see um, some of them coming back last year, but maybe some of them that were typically held in the beginning of the year, now they're coming back. And so... Like we mentioned, Night in Chinatown, there's also the New Year's Ohana Festival and the Honolulu Festival, which are returning in person this year. So one of the community leaders I spoke to was Leonard Cam, and he's the president of Chinatown 808. So it's the nonprofit that took over planning Night in Chinatown, of course, which celebrates Lunar New Year. It might be a small area, but the heart of Chinatown is very strong. And I think our, our stores in, in our shops in Chinatown and or, all the organizations there look forward to this event because not only does it bring more people and awareness to Chinatown, but I think it helps us also to promote the culture as well. So who puts these uh, f- uh, festivals on? That's a great question. So Leonard's actually a volunteer, and he has actually planned about 20 Night in Chinatown festivals, if you can believe it, while also holding a full-time job and having a family. He's one of 12 volunteers who plan the festival, and then it takes about 100 volunteers to run it. So for many of these ethnic festivals, that's kind of a similar situation. Uh, For example, the three-day Honolulu Festival, which returns in person in March. So they have about 100 staff to plan it, but then it takes about 500 volunteers to run the three days of festivities, which take place in Waikiki and other places on Oahu. And then, of course, the New Year's Ohana Festival is organized by the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. And so they have about 10 volunteers in the core uh, planning group, plus some of the JCCH staff chip in, and then they need about 80 to run it. So as you can imagine, for a lot of these volunteers, there's a lot of passion involved and um, strong cultural ties, family ties, uh, just things like that. So I actually spoke to Leonard about this and kind of how much work it takes to put on a festival like this. It's a lot of work to to put this together, a lot of coordination, a lot of uh, help that we need from various entities, you know, from the government, from private uh, companies, and from the community itself just to, to support the event. So we're excited to bring it back. And I think the community has responded in very favorable ways to, to that. So what can we expect to see as these things come back online? Yeah, so as you can imagine with the pandemic, there are some changes to the festivals. So for example, the Honolulu Festival is expecting fewer international performers. So if you've been to the Honolulu Festival before, they have a lot of people come in from Japan and the Pacific Rim to share their different cultural um, dances and performances. But because of travel kind of coming back slowly, um, they're expecting less of them. But they say that that allows them to kind of showcase more local performers and groups. So I guess that's kind of a silver lining that they they explained to me. Um, a little bit more about the Honolulu Festival. You know, they were they planned to bring it back last year in March. But then as we remember, the Omicron variant was still surging. So they made kind of a last minute decision to kind of, you know, cancel it and then 
um, return this year. So some other changes to the festivals, including the New Year's Ohana Festival, is that the event is also scaled down. So typically it's held at the JC, JCCH's grounds in Mo'ili'ili and the field across the street. So there's kind of a lot of room for food vendors, craft vendors, um, stages for performers. But because of this year, we're still kind of in the pandemic. Um, organizers are deciding to kind of hold it at the JCCH only, um, you know, kind of scale it down, um, fewer performers. Performers, but still kind of hopefully the same energy, right? So I spoke to Nate Gyotoku, and he's the JCCH's president and executive director. And so it's been about two years of pandemic impact. So he says they're a bit unsure about what to expect this year. This year, we were watching it a little closer. And then um, with the reopening of our ballroom, and we started to see events coming back and these bigger events at our own ballroom, we kind of made the decision, you know, around uh, late spring, early summer, like, yeah, let's go for it. Like, let's let's make it happen. You know, let's see what we can do um, this year. And yeah, so we've, we've been kind of hard charging ever since. Yeah, so it sounds like they really want to make a go of it. And, yeah. and that way everybody can really enjoy it. But, you know, we understand uh, prices are still uh, pretty mm-hmm. high for the Japanese who might be interested in coming and they just can't afford it. So you've got to scale it down. Yeah, some changes this year, but again, the festivals are still returning. Some things to look out for. Night in Chinatown returns on Saturday. It's in Chinatown, of course. There'll be food, games, entertainment, and a parade down Hotel Street. Then the Sunday after is the New Year's Ohana Festival. They'll have live entertainment, food, and crafts. And then in March, the Honolulu Festival returns. And the great thing is that they're all free and open to the public. Okay, so mark your calendars now. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Jane. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to HPR's Jane Omae. Uh, check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Well, that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we continue our Aquaculture Week stories. We talk to a second company, Blue Ocean Barns, as it scales up its seaweed production to help with suppressing methane product, uh, gas in the cattle industry. Call our talkback line for feedback, 808-792-8217. And remember, you can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or on HPR's website. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.